five, four, three, two, one. I'm John Miglosh for the Wisconsin DMA and the International Society for Strategic Marketing. Okay, let's get let's get over to Tom Fishburn. Okay, and here we go. Happy Thursday, right? Yeah, it's not Thursday. Oh, Tuesday. Target. Okay, targeted advertising and the end of third-party cookies. Yeah, yeah, we heard that before. But I think this is a really good article, so I have to I have to give Tom credit for this one. Uh, how are we going to target relevant ads after cookies go away and we can no longer rely on the sketchy third-party data none of us trusts? Okay, and I've been telling you this for years. <laughs> you know, I'm a guy who gets his hands dirty. If I had a nickel for every August 32nd, in a in a data set they're just data is is refuse and uh my book is on one side or the other but anyway my book is called spinning straw into gold and the title came from the fact that straw is a hygiene product it's not hay it's not it's not something you feed to animals it's something that you put under animals to catch the stuff that comes out of the animals that's what data is and, you know, we came to that conclusion about as soon as we started trying to work with it. So a couple of years ago, MIT and a couple other people studied the accuracy of third-party data that is regularly collected, okay, and sold by data brokers as the foundation of programmatic advertising. They looked at some of the most common data points in business-to-consumer, including age and gender, then they checked the accuracy. Gender was only 50% accurate. And it was the most accurate data point. It went downhill from there, right? Now, the conclusion or the extrapolation of that is really good, okay? But if we can't get gender right 50% of the time, which means a coin flip would be just as good as all the third-party data you've been buying, how good do you think we are at identifying IT decision makers or airplane procurement specialists? I would guess the accuracy is below 10%. Yes, probably way below that. Okay. Tactics like personalization are based on a very naive, a very naive assumption. An assumption that the data is all good and the data is not all good. As we've seen, the data is mostly bad. The more hands the data passes through, if you're buying data from somebody who's buying data, and everybody does, okay? You know, I know Mark Graham, for example. I mean, he knows the guys behind the guys behind the guys, you know. And uh, even so, you find people, dead people from 20 years ago and stuff. If you think the voter rolls are bad, mailing lists are bad, and third-party data is way worse because there's not even an address to hang things on, Okay. If the vendor can't explain to you in a single sentence where the data comes from, I think it's a red flag. Well, even worse than that, I get I get these uh, you know people connecting with me on LinkedIn, and and they and they'll tell me what is your list source for X Y Z whatever it is, and I'll say what's your data source for your list of X Y Z, and they'll say we are the we are the number one list company in the world. Never mind, I've never heard of it, you know, and they. <laughs> They claim that they have all fancy cleaned up data. Oh, here's some other things. Yeah, that one's a scary one. But this one I kind of like. Bad personalization is worse than no personalization. This brand newsletter just called me first name instead of Virginia. 
And then it says macchiato for vagina. <laughs> okay, so that's kind of where we're at in marketing. And that's why I always suggest that a good offer beats creepy personalization. Okay, now, one of, the, one of the great pioneers in database, Kate Kestenbaum passed away recently, October 28th. And uh, I thought Kate was Bob's daughter. She always looked way better than Bob. <laughs> Bob died in 2001 and, you know, Kate took over. And I thought, I thought it was his daughter. I always thought it was his daughter. Yeah, that's something. So she maybe she was a little younger than Bob. But anyway, um, somebody credited them with developing customer lifetime value. But I'm pretty sure Martin Baer is the one who developed it at Old American. Uh, Martin and I were friends also. Uh, so the Keston Bombs not only were, you know, good competitors and provided a foundation for what I ended up doing with computers and pioneering computers in marketing, but they gave me something to look at, you know. But also Rick Cartu uh, was a pioneer in modeling, and he worked for Bob and Kate. So anyway, just wanted to mention that. You know what they say, if you don't go to your friend's funeral, they won't come to yours. How direct mail innovation started my stone business. Okay, Hunter Bliss... Hunter Bliss had an article about stone paper, which I really didn't know anything about. And so uh, I reached out to Hunter, and he actually sent me some samples. And so let's turn the camera back to me. And I always have trouble with this camera. But this is a book printed on stone paper um, in Australia. Okay, it's an odd book about a jungle job service. But anyway, but and he sent one of his one of his like patented or whatever origami envelopes and in the envelope actually there's a little there's a little set of stone paper um and again I don't think you can see this but there's stone paper kind of like you'd make a postcard out of them. Okay, and just in case you don't know what stone paper is, according to Wikipedia, uh Bio, it's called bioplastic paper. I, I understand it was invented in about 1989 in China. And it's made from calcium carbonate, I think. And But anyway, it's like minerals that are then held together with plastic. And it has some advantages. Here's some, some uh, wrapping paper on it, very thin. It has some advantages. One is because it's not cellulose, you don't have to coat over the absorbing wood. And this is um, this is printed on it. It's very, very nice. Very uh, sort of a soft feel. It feels like coated stock is what it feels like, but it's not. Okay, it just comes that way. And some things work well for, with it. Some don't. Um, heat, laser printed. You know where they go through a heater that can melt uh, the surface. Um, but it's uh, photodegradable under if you let it out in the sun. Um, it has a texture somewhat like the outer membrane of a boiled egg. Nah, I wouldn't say that's true. Uh, it's much softer than that, not shiny at all. Um, they're compatible with inkjet or solid ink printers. I saw another article saying that uh, stone paper might, um, might replace a lot of inkjet papers. Um, and so... The it's 
it's it's uh, not pr being produced very much, but I think that it's going to definitely have a place. Um, it doesn't use bleaches because it uses the calcium uh, mineral, which is basically very, very white, and then high-density polyethylene, okay, resin to make it work. So I was, anyway, I was intrigued by it. It makes a good book. This was especially kind of nice because it felt, it feels kind of like plastic coated. So if you, you know how some children's books are more durable, they, they're, they're harder to tear, kind of a Tyvek. Uh, this has kind of a, a softer, less crinkly feel than Tyvek. So it'll definitely have a place. Okay, this was an article I had high hopes for. Uh, it was about a printing company from PI World uh, founded in 1956 called TC delivers um, and they were in Pennsylvania but they moved to Florida and um, they were founded in part by the legendary Elliot Ness which who was uh, the subject of the untouchables TV series um, an FBI I believe it was an FBI agent um, anyway so it goes on about how they've switched gears. They went from being a coupon book company. Interestingly, I helped Deluxe Check launch a coupon book maybe after they transitioned out of this in the 80s because it would have been the 80s, uh, you know, to collect rent with. And we raised the response rate 20% by just changing a few words and making some, making some things bigger. Anyway... Uh, but they got out of that in the 80s. They were the third largest in the world and um, changed into an automated mailing company. And in the 90s, they became one of the largest processors of mail in the country. Uh, but now they're going with dig more digital presses. Uh, they believe that clients are getting much smarter about their marketing. Uh, targeted marketing, in particular, has been a major component of the mail campaigns they also print ballots anyway it was an interesting progression of how a printing company changes as the times change and it sounds like they've done a pretty good job of it it's a very very long article so we're not going to read it to you but i will have it up in the show notes oh <laughs> i'm talking about it here and highlighting things and you're not seeing any of it that's okay it's in the show notes so if you go over to wdma.org in a few minutes it'll be up there and you can read the whole thing have a great day like and share your friends will know you're smart comment always like the comments because they're worth 20 likes so if you want to be a worthwhile person make a comment bye bye